Hi there everyone and welcome to this week's installment of the Good News According to Job. I trust that you're all doing well and that you're all ready to jump into the next section of Job. Uh, This week we are turning to Bildad and what he has to say to Job. Uh, This follows what what we looked at last week in uh, Job 16 and 17 where Job spoke. Uh, this section is a little bit shorter, this passage, so what we'll do today is we're going to read through it. Uh, if you haven't yet read it, uh, I, I, I do encourage you to try and spend some time and read it for yourself. But uh, otherwise we're going to go through it and we're going to look at the the bulk of this passage and what it has to say uh, and what Bildad is saying here. Um, Bildad is rather forthright in what he has to say. He kind of says it as it is. Uh, there's not much beating about the bush in it. Um, and it's a lot of uh, listing of things that he, he makes. Uh, but before we begin to unpack it, let's quickly read it. And then I'll just highlight a couple things that we need to take notice of and just consider a little bit further as to what is happening here with uh, Bildad. So let's read. It is Job 18. And it says this, Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? The lamp of the wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. The vigor of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into a net. He wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Terrors startle him on every side and dog his every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up below and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He is driven from the light into the realm of darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived. People of the West are appalled at his fate. Those of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who does not know God. And so this is Job 18. This is what Bildad has to say to Job. Um, maybe you've read this uh, before and you're, you're wondering what, what, is, what is Bildad actually trying to say here? 
maybe you you get an idea of what's being said. In the previous sections where Job's friends have had something to say to him, they've, they've said it somewhat more vaguely. They've hinted at certain ideas. They've challenged Job's thinking. They've questioned his circumstance and why everything is happening to him in the way that it is happening to him. But as we get to Bildad and what Bildad says here, we have two main sections. Uh, and the one section, and again, I've, I've made mention of this in, in previous videos, is that the way in which Bildad argues is uh, not in the way that one would hope, as Job longs for a friend that will point him to God and encourage him to keep on persevering. The unfortunate thing here is that we can see outright that in Bildad's response, nothing that he says points Job to God. And this is possibly a really blatant um, example of one of the friends and one of the cases in which they don't do uh, what a true friend should be doing, and that is pointing the person to God. And so last week we did we looked at Job and how he desires for a friend that will intercede for him, someone that will will go before God and and plead his case uh, and stand for him and defend him where he can't. Uh, in, in the same breath, Job longs for someone that's a true friend, someone that's a genuine friend, someone that, uh, if we want to flip back, you can actually read it. He uses these words in Job 16 verse 19. He says, Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one who pleads for a friend. And so he has this picture of an intercessor. Who that intercessor is, we, we're not sure. And last week we said maybe we can uh, just play around with that idea. But for us, we understand who the true intercessor is, that it is Jesus Christ. But for Job, he's longing for that. He's longing for an intercessor, someone that will plead for him, uh, whereas his friends aren't. And here we hear Bildad's words. And they are outright challenging Job, outright speaking against him, but nowhere uplifting him, nowhere encouraging him, nowhere pointing him to God and saying, keep on going. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't give up your faith. But instead, uh, something else is said. There's two aspects to what is said. The first aspect you find in verses 2 to 4. And really in that section, it's Bildad reflecting on himself and the friends and how they feel treated by Job. So immediately, the first thing that Bildad does is tries to consider his own circumstances, tries to defend himself, tries to use that as a springboard into what he's about to say. Uh, he is essentially trying to build a case for himself and saying what you have been saying and how you've been treating us, Job, is an indication of something. And so if we read those three verses again quickly, it says, When will you, in these speeches, be sensible and then we can talk? So firstly, what Bildad is saying is you keep on going. You keep on saying what you're saying and you're not listening. When will you give up? Uh, your speeches? When will you stop talking and actually then engage in what we are saying? So what Bildad is saying here is everything that you are saying, Job, is irrelevant. You, you aren't listening to us. And when will you be quiet so that you will listen to us? And it's a little bit ironic in that sense because nowhere are they actually listening to what Job is saying. 
Nowhere are they truly hearing Job's heart, Job's plea, Job's longing. Uh, everywhere they are hearing uh, what they want to hear and they are feeling offended because Job is not listening to them rather than actually them not having listened to Job. And then the next verse, verse 3, Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? I mean, these are strong words. Nowhere do we really see these words come to the surface prior to, to, this, to this chapter in Job. Nowhere does Job actually use the language uh, uh, that they are cattle or that they are stupid. But obviously they can read into what Job is saying. Job is actually insinuating that they're not wise. Uh, but that isn't that he is insinuating that they're stupid. So they've read into what he has said. That Job says for them, if they were to be quiet, uh, that would be wise. That would be wisdom for them if they would actually be quiet because of what they had been saying. And yet they somehow have read into what Job is saying there and saying, well, actually, you, you consider us stupid. And yet, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I don't think Job is implying that they're stupid. Uh, it's there's a there's a line, there's a difference between thinking someone is stupid and thinking that they don't have wisdom. Uh, to call someone stupid if they don't have a depth of wisdom is unfair. It's just that you lack wisdom. But to call someone stupid means you actually lack basic insights. It means you lack basic knowledge. Uh, to call someone stupid. To call someone stupid is, is an offensive thing. But Job is not saying that. He is not implying that. And Bildad is picking up on that and he's using that to, to springboard into what he wants to say. And then verse 4. You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? So they're really saying, is this really about you, Job? Is it all about you? You, you keep going on and you keep tearing yourself to pieces. You, you're actually just abusing yourself now. So just stop moaning, stop complaining, and listen to what we have to say. You keep tearing yourself to pieces. You're angry. You're the one that is to blame here. Um, and what? Must the whole world abandon, be abandoned for your sake? Must the whole world stop now because you're suffering? Now, it's quite a harsh thing to say. It's... Yeah, there, there may be truth in that, and, and it is true. The world doesn't stop because you're suffering. But to say it to a person that is suffering, their world is what they are facing. And in many cases, if you think about it from a very reasonable perspective, you can only perceive what you can, well, you can only understand and, and, and absorb and take in what you see around you. So when you are suffering, personally, your world comes to a standstill. Not the rest of the world, but your world does. Everything that you know, everything that you hold on to, everything that you believe in, tends to feel like it's coming to a point of stopping. And it's difficult to carry on. It's hard to endure. And yet they are coming in and they're saying, well, do you think that the rest of the world must now stop and will be abandoned because for your sake? And so it's harsh words to a person that is suffering, that feels that way. And our Job is not implying that the world must stop. He has all the way along said he longs, he has hoped, he would rather die. But nowhere does he say that that must happen to the rest of the world. Nowhere does Job imply that the rest of the world must bend to his circumstance. 
In fact, he's saying the opposite. He would rather leave the world uh, and, in that sense, depart from it rather than endure the suffering. As he, as Bildad then goes on to say in the second part of 4, or must the rocks be moved from their place? Uh, must, must there be something within the very foundations of creation be changed and altered for your sake? Is the insinuation that comes in there. Must the rocks be moved from their place? Um, it's, it's something that can't simply just be moved. It's something that is massive. It's set in place. And he's saying, must something on a foundational level be changed, be altered for your sake? Must God change uh, creation, change the foundations for your sake? And you'll see how that comes into his argument that he's now about to launch into. So the second section to, to what Bildad has to say, and that's why I say what Bildad is saying here is relatively straightforward. There's not many facets to it. it it's, he has a lot to say, and, and when you start picking at each little bit, you'll start to see where it's tied back to and how each thing that he says has such uh, an immense amount of ramifications, and, and you pick up on what he is uh, seeing in Job and Job's circumstance. But essentially the second section here is verse 5 to the end in 21. And I want to pick up verse 5 and 21 and just see how it starts and how it ends and see how it's very similar in the, the use of certain language. In verse 5 he says, The lamp of the wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. And then he says this in verse 21, Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who does not know God. Now, you might not see the connection. Maybe you picked up on one, one or two words there. But what's interesting is the use of uh, how it begins. It says, the lamp of the wicked man is snuffed out. And then verse 21, the first section, surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. So you got this wicked man, you got this evil man that's, that's played off of one another and that's bookended. This is what, what Bildad is talking about here. Everything that he's about to say is based on this wicked, evil man. And this isn't hypothetical. This is implied uh, and it is looking at Job and saying, you are a wicked man. You are an evil man. And maybe you're not convinced by that. Maybe you don't. You want to give Bildad the benefit of the doubt and say, no, I, I don't think he's that harsh with Job. Uh, but I want to challenge you and say he is. He is because he's picking up on certain things in this passage. And hopefully as we run through some of them, you'll start to see uh, where he is drawing his connections. So just keep in mind the, the, the book ends of this passage is about this wicked, this evil man. And what he says in the middle here, in the rest of the section, uh, between 5 and 21, is he's explaining what it looks like. What, uh, what the condition, what the circumstance, what the, the life or the struggle of a wicked man looks like. So notice... The first section, the first thing that he says in this section of verse 5 is, The lamp of the wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. Verse 6, The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. This is 
significant because there is this aspect of when they start playing, when the writer or the, or the speakers start using this idea of light and darkness, especially going from light to darkness, it becomes this uncreation, this uncreation of things. And so when he says the lamp of the wicked man is snuffed out, there is an uncreation that he is about to talk about. He is saying that the wicked man is uncreated. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light of his tent becomes dark. And the lamp beside him goes out. He is talking about the wicked person will be uncreated. The wicked person will unravel, will fall apart, will cease to be a created being. And all the things around him begin to fall apart, begin to crumble, begin to be uncreated. And so right up front, Bildad is coming in at Job and he's saying, look at your life, consider it. And where has the flame, where has the light been snuffed out in your life? Or where is it being snuffed out? Now, if you look at it very logically, you can immediately see if a life is maybe represented by a light and you consider, for example, Job's children. They are snuffed out. They are literally, uh, they are, their lights are snuffed out. And so uncreation is taking place around him. His family, his livestock, his, his possessions start to crumble around him. There's this uncreation taking place around Job. And so the question that is asked, essentially, or the suggestion that is put forward by Bildad is that that is an indication of a wicked person, a wicked man, an evil man, when his possessions, when his life, when his livelihood is beginning to uncreate around him. Notice the next thing that he says, verse 7, the vigor of his steps is weakened, his own schemes throw him down, his feet thrust him into a net, he wanders into its mesh, a trap seizes him by the heel, a snare holds him fast, a noose is hidden, for him on the ground, a trap lies in his path. And so what's significant about what Bildad is saying here is that there are traps ready to spring all around him. Yet he is weakened. He, you get this picture of a, a animal that has been weakened uh, and it is about to be trapped. It's about to be ensnared. It's as he says there, so the vigor of his steps is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. But then it takes it, he takes it one step further in verse 8, 9, and 10. is uh, The feet are thrust into, thrust into a net. Uh, verse 9, a trap seizes him. 10, a noose is hidden. So these are images of him being trapped, being captured uh, by the circumstances, by what is happening around him. And this is all a result of his weakened estate, his weakened uh, condition that he is in. And if anybody in the book of Job is in that position, it is Job himself. We get that picture as the friends come to him. He's sitting there in dust and ash. He is broken. He is scarred. He is covered with scabs. He is like this weakened. His, he's exactly what verse 7 is saying. The vigor of his steps is weakened. He can barely stand as he sits in dust and ash. And then it carries on in verse 11. Uh, Terrors startle him on every side and dog his every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. And so the suggestion here is, if you recall, Job has used 
the the language that the terrors of God uh, they keep him awake, and when he closes his eyes, he he is wakened by these terrors, uh, and the calamity of uh, is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. And so he is consumed by calamity, by disaster. You don't have to look far. The suggestion is that calamity has consumed him because he has fallen. And this is going back to what the three friends have been saying up until this point. What Job is experiencing is a result of his fall because of something that he had done. And so they've been seeking, they've been on that witch hunt, trying to find what it is that Job has done. And so they are saying that the terrors and the calamity are a result of something that he has done. And as a result, uh, what he has said about terrors, what he has said about his current circumstance, is for them purely an indication that he has sinned. He is a wicked and an evil man. We can then move on actually a little bit faster, and go to verse 13, it says, it eats away at parts of his skin, picking up again on the idea of his flesh that is mutilated, it is broken, it, I mean, it's covered in scabs, uh, quite literally, as they're sitting there, they're looking at him, and they must be able to see Job sitting there covered in scabs, they can see how it has eaten away at parts of his skin, his circumstance, his condition, death's firstborn devours his limbs, and then he carries on in verse 14. He is torn from security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. He has lost everything. Job has lost his home, lost his family, lost everything he has. And so they pick up again on the idea in verse 14. He is torn from the security of his tent. Job has no tent anymore. His house, his everything has fallen, fallen to pieces. Uh, verse 15, fire resides in his tent, burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. Now we mustn't confuse this with what was said early on about uh, this flame that is, uh, as or the light in verse 6, the light in his tent becomes dark. This is now a different circumstance. This fire is a that resides in his tent is a judgment. It's especially the idea of fire and sulfur. Uh, the fire resides in his tent. The burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. What has happened to you, Job, is a result of judgment for your sin. And that's, that's the insinuation that takes place. As we go on further, his roots dry up below and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. Job, you are being forgotten. You are being uncreated. You are you aren't leaving a legacy. You aren't leaving your name. What is taking place here is an uncreation. It's an undoing of your very existence. And that's the idea that as your, as your light turns to darkness, all of those uncreation things that we pick up in the beginning is picked up again here. And the idea that the memory of him perishes from the earth, uh, he has no name in all the land, is an uncreation aspect. Most people will immediately say, well, someone should know him. But to suggest that no one will know you is to suggest that you were never created. It is uncreating the, the very memory of him. Uh, verse 18, he is driven from light into the realm of darkness. And that's backing up uh, straight after that idea that we just looked at of the memory of him. He is now driven from uh, the realm driven from light into the realm of darkness and banished from the world. 
uh, again a picture of uncreation. And then verse 19, he has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived. And again, this is there's two sides to this. This is possibly picking up again and pushing further with the idea of uncreating. Because if you procreate, it is a picture of creating yourself and a creational uh, overflow. Whereas to say that you have no offspring is a further uh, digging deeper into the idea of being uncreated. But it at the same time plays off the fact that Job has lost his family, he's lost his children, he has no offspring. And so there's this jab at the reality of the fact that Job has nothing, he has no children. And so again, picking up that this isn't just some random uh, listing of what a wicked man or an evil man looks like, but this is actually highlighting aspects of truths about Job's current circumstance and using them against Job to build a case to say that you are a wicked and an evil man. Then verse 20, people of the West are appalled at his fate. Those of the East are seized with horror. And so there's this picture of East to West, the, the whole uh, realm, the whole extent of all the earth look in at you and they are appalled. They are in horror uh, of you. Um, which is quite a shocking thing to say. Uh, it, it's to, to go up to a friend and say to them, you know what, all that's happening to you is what you deserve. You did something wrong and everybody should be disgusted by you. Everybody should be uh, appalled by you. Everybody should be terrified of what has happened to you. And then verse 21, Surely such, surely, such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who does not know God. It's this last verse that becomes the probably the most uncomfortable verse uh, in, in Bildad's response here. He's not simply saying, you know, Job, you've done evil things, you're wicked, um, and you need to repent. But actually he's gone a little bit further and he's saying, such is the place of one who does not know God. Bildad is looking in at Job's life and he's saying, you are in the position that you are in because you don't know God. Now we need to take a step back and really wrestle with that and think, well, is this true? Is this true? With all that we know about Job, is this true? And the answer is no. And God tells us. Here is a man that fears the Lord, shuns evil. He is blameless. He is upright. Everything that Job, that Bildad has said here is in contradiction to who we know Job to be because of who God has told us who Job is. Nowhere has God insinuated through the introduction of Job, and we'll find that also at the end of Job, that Job is a wicked or an evil man. Because nowhere is it suggested that Job doesn't know God. I mean, going back a couple of weeks, we remember that Job will rather lose his life than deny the word of God. And so that should be stuck in our head that we can't lose sight of that, that we can't forget that. 
that Job is considered blameless. He is considered upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. So where is it that Bildad has got this information? How is it that Bildad can say what he has said here? Well, it comes down to the fact that there has to be a reason in their mind. There has to be a reason for Job to go through what he is going through. Because surely it's not possible that Job could endure and face everything that he has if he didn't do something wrong. But we are told that Job has done nothing wrong, nothing to deserve this. And that's maybe unsettling to us. That upsets us. That sometimes things happen in this world not because you necessarily deserve it, but because it is permitted. Because we are living in a broken world. Because we are living in a world that doesn't always make sense. But that sometimes these things happen to refine us, to grow us. And that to search for what you've done wrong is to lose sight of who God is. Because the strange thing is, self-justification is the search of what you've done wrong so you can do it right. And Job here is recognizing that he is broken, but yet Bildad is adamant that there is wickedness, there is evil in Job. And so Bildad and the friends are on a hunt to find what Job has done wrong so that he can be justified, so that he can do right. And yet Job as a book teaches us that that's not necessarily the case. That to simply do right doesn't make you right. To do the right thing doesn't set all things back in order. But in actual fact, it's to seek God first. And to recognize, as Job did, that perhaps... His children had sinned and he didn't know about it. And so he was willing to sacrifice in case. But it wasn't to do the right thing. The right thing would, to be, would be to sacrifice when they sinned. But Job feared God. That was his heart. That's the driving force behind who Job is. Job feared the God behind the laws behind the words, behind the instructions. Bildad and the friends may fear God, but they fear God to the laws, to the instructions, to the teachings. And so the teachings, the laws, what they can know becomes greater than the God that Job is fearing. And so... Wrestle with Bildad for a bit longer. Spend some more time reading this and see. Maybe, maybe you don't fully agree. But Bildad here is really attacking Job. And you need to ask yourself the question, well, who is Job? Do I believe what Bildad is saying here is true according to who Job is? According to who we told Job is? So as you contemplating this, Think a little bit further about it. Who do you think Job is in light of this? And ultimately, uh, we are taught something really beautiful in this. That it's not about 
the evil man, the wicked man, as Bildad is making it out to be. Because as we see this in contrast with who Job is, and as we've stated, it's about who are you fearing most? And I think that's where Job falls into the right category. And we can see that there's hope for Job because he really, truly does fear the Lord. Because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So maybe that's a question that we need to put out there. And maybe we can revisit it as we go along and there'll be other opportunities to look at it. But today, as you consider yourself in light of this passage, in light of what we've been looking at in Job, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord and do you shun evil? Are you willing to come to God for both the sins that you do know as well as the sins that you don't? Have a think about it. And we'll see you next week. Cheers, bye.